This is An Economy of One, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy, its life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One on Facebook. Well, we're done with the first 100 days. And I got to thinking about it. You know, I haven't been disappointed with President Trump's performance the first 100 days. You can see he's definitely on a learning curve and that he's getting settled into the job. And the politics of being president, I think, are much, much, much different than the politics of being CEO of your own company. And I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons that President Trump has gone through the first 100 days. I don't think 100 days is a fair assessment of anything. When we hire someone in our office, we have a 90-day probationary period. This 90 days is to see if that person's personality fits into our culture. And whether we didn't see anything during the hiring process that is important. In other words, if there's some character flaws or uh, some uh, baggage that comes with that employee that we didn't really see, then we want that 90-day probationary period. After that 90-day probationary period, I tell my people that it's about a two-year learning curve for our company. You got to learn what we do, how we do it, how our clients react, uh, what our clients expect of us. In other words, all the duties of the job, both complex and mundane. But 100 days is not enough time to give a full assessment for President of the United States. Now, he's done a lot of executive orders, uh, more than uh, most of the recent presidents, if not all of the recent presidents. I think there's 28, 29, 30 uh, executive orders he's done his first 100 days. Yeah, yeah, he's changed the narrative a little bit around some of his campaign uh, promises. But overall, I think he's stuck with the theme. I think the politics, the reality of politics in Washington, D.C. has caused him to change around some of the narrative. I think the underlying goals are still the same. Problem I have with 100 days is people use that as a make or break for the president. You remember there were senators and representatives talking impeachment of Donald Trump before he was even sworn in as president. Now, how fair is that? If you were an employer and during the interview process of a, an employee, you said, well, we're going to fire you, how many people would take that job? It would be harassment as an employer. You got to give them some time time to settle into the job, time to get their team together, time to get organized, time to to figure out how things work and the channels that uh, need to be navigated to get done what you want done. This guy's a master negotiator. So yeah, he's made some, some strong statements like we're yanking out of NAFTA. But you know what? It caused Canada and Mexico to come to the bargaining table and uh, seriously negotiate things. So was that a flip-flop 
or was it a negotiating technique? I would tend to believe it's a negotiating technique. He's put China in their place. China is taking North Korea seriously, finally. Economic confidence is up. And I'm not just talking the stock market. Stock market is up, but ultimately the valuation in the market has to be supported by earnings. And earnings can be influenced by a lot of things, not the least of which is taxes. Taxes and regulation. So the prospect of the Affordable Care Act being modified, maybe outright repealed over the next couple of years, has caused businesses to react positively and do things that help their earnings. Same way with taxes. Now, President Trump put forth a tax proposal this last week. Will it go through Congress? Not as is. Nothing ever does. Nothing does. It's going to be modified. It's going to be uh, bargained back and forth. There'll be give and take. And uh, the press will jump all over that as every, everything that is negotiated and compromised on is a failure for Donald Trump. It's a failure. He flip-flopped. Well, the fact is that's how things work in Washington. I don't like it. You don't like it. That's not the way you and I work on an individual basis. But that's how things work worked. This country is greatly divided, but not as divided as what the press would have us believe. These protesters, these violent, cowardly protesters, are essentially paid thugs, and uh, they enjoy what they're doing. They get a little of attention, probably get paid a little bit, I don't know. But uh, it does not represent the vast majority of Americans. Vast majority of Americans abhor violence. They support free speech, even if they don't agree with it. And we're at a critical point in our history that someday our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will look back at this and say, what were they thinking? I truly believe America is the greatest country in the world. We have been since our founding, and we will continue to be the greatest country in the world. Do we have our problems right now? Yeah, we got a few problems. Still the greatest country in the world. Still the greatest country in the world. Our Constitution, greatest document in the world. And I think it will continue to be that if, if you and I don't succumb to the negative out there and accept the conclusions that the media want us to accept. President Trump has uh, done good his first 100 days, and I got one, one bullet point that is above all others. Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch. That's it. Think of what we could have had. Think of what we would have had if we would be talking about President Hillary Clinton right now. Think of a Supreme Court, which is not supposed to be political, but we all know it is. It's highly political. Think of what would have happened to free speech, to Second Amendment rights, to Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. I mean, think of 
what could have happened if the Supreme Court would have ended up with five, six, seven liberal justices. These people are appointed for life, which I think is wrong, but that's for another another topic and another show. But Supreme Court justices are there for a long, long time. So much of what we've seen in the media the first hundred days has been simply, I don't want to use the word fake news, but essentially fake news. Um, we've learned that the Russian connection to President Trump in, in uh, trying to sway the election was manufactured. Um, the wiretapping on Trump's family and his campaign, um, you know, we, we've seen that that is true. Was it uh, incidental to other wiretapping? I don't know. You and I don't get that information. We don't see behind the curtain on so much of this stuff. But the attitude out there in the economy is what is important. Because for America to be great, for America to maintain its greatness, it boils down to the individual. I do not want a dictator. I want a leader. But a leader, a true leader, wants the individual to excel. My identity politics, I'll give it to you. It's the individual. It's the individual. I'm not part of a group. I don't identify with a group. I'm not a victim of anything. I'm an individual. And if I don't like something in my life, I will change it. I will not petition the government to change it. Now, does the government interfere with my life and cause problems in my life? Sure they do. And I will work to change that, but they will not change me as an individual. Virtually all the problems that the media has put out there around President Trump are imagined. He hasn't released his tax returns. Personally, I don't care. But because he hasn't, the media says there's problems there. He's hiding things. Well, we don't know. We don't know. That's an imagined problem. Has he been the puppet of Putin in Russia? I don't think so. I don't think so. He had uh, some uh, Tomahawk missiles that he uh, lit the fuse on in Syria that uh, Russia clearly didn't like. He's put China in their place. The international relations look fine. We've always had a bad relationship with Russia. We always will. But for the first hundred days, I think he's done a heck of a job. And he's certainly done a better job than you and I could have. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say the probationary period is over. And we'll continue to go to work. Coming up next, I want to share my celebration of Earth Day last week and the March for Science. I'll talk about that next. 
An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This last week was Earth Day last weekend, and uh, we had the uh, marches for science. I don't know what the heck that means, but each year on Earth Day, I celebrate by uh, burning a tribute to uh, these whack jobs and and their leader, uh, Al Gore, by uh, burning a tire on my property. So I live out in the country. It's not like I live in suburban and and light a tire in my backyard and smoke my neighbors out or anything like that but i live out in the country and we have uh, brush we burn i'm on a lot of acreage and we we clean a lot of brush every every year and burn it and uh that that's my tribute uh to earth day i uh i'm not uh of the mind that uh man has a serious impact on the co2 levels in the atmosphere um i understand that maybe maybe the earth is warming but i also understand that the earth warms and cools uh throughout its uh lifetime and i'm old enough to remember that 30 years ago the big push maybe a little more than 30 years ago was the coming ice age the earth was cooling Remember that in the early 80s? The Earth was cooling, coming ice age, and they were talking about how to put more CO2 in the air at that time. It's silly. The marches for science were, the theme was evidence-based policies. Okay, well, you know, evidence and facts and truth are three different things. So the evidence they have, if it's, garnered in a non-scientific way, as we have seen, by putting sensors near heat exhaust, sensors on asphalt, that kind of stuff, to to uh, get the conclusion that these so-called scientists want. That's their evidence, but it's not factual. Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't run experiments on the atmosphere, but I do read everything. And the number one CO2 pollutant are volcanoes. Now, how do you regulate a volcano? Well, you don't. There are trillions and trillions of cubic meters of carbon stored below the Earth's crust that is working its way to the top through fissures in the ocean and volcanoes. Another major contributor to CO2, you ready? the world's termite population. Termites eat wood and expel CO2 because of it. Now, how do you regulate termites? Maybe we need to outlaw termites. Al Gore came out this week and said, it's going to take 15, ready, trillion dollars to save the planet. If we don't, major apocalypse is going to happen for the planet. And by the year 2100, the Earth's temperature will have raised 2 degrees Celsius, and that's catastrophic. Well, a couple things there. One, 
they can't tell you very accurately what tomorrow's weather is going to be, let alone 100 years from now. Two, the Earth does not have a temperature. The Earth has a climate, and different temperatures are all over the place. Every time you move 100 feet, you got a different temperature. If they want evidence-based policy, they need to switch that to fact-based policy. Science is never settled. Never. There is always more experiments to be had to prove points. Have to be able to duplicate things. This is simply computer models and speculation. Speculation based on biased information gathered by people who have a political agenda. It's fascinating to me that the future of the world depends on coughing up money, penalizing people their wealth. $15 trillion, and you know that's in today's dollars, so by the time they get their money, if they were to get it, it'd be 30 trillion, maybe 40 trillion, probably 100 trillion, I don't know. It's never enough. And these people that demand this live pretty darn well. You know, the third world countries won't be able to provide anything because they're victims. So you and I, the Americans, will have to pay the full $15 trillion. So keep in mind, next year when Earth Day comes around, burn a tire for Al Gore. It's what I do. I feel good about it. Coming up next, Dr. Betsy McCoy. We're going to be talking about healthcare and taxes and whatever else I can get her expertise on. We'll talk to Betsy next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Dr. Betsy McCoy. She's chairman and founder of a committee to reduce infection deaths. She's a senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Research and a former lieutenant governor of New York State and author of the book Beating Obamacare, one of my favorite people in the whole world to talk to. Betsy, welcome back to An Economy of One. Well, thank you. I feel that way about you because your show is such a public service. Well, thank it's you. so full of vital information. Thank you. I appreciate it. I want to talk to you about two things, and we're going to get to, to the other one, uh, the obvious one, in a few minutes. But uh, a, a, uh, Katie, who you knew well, uh, my producer, said that, you know, one of your passions for a long time has been infection deaths. And, and you recently wrote uh, a really good column about how much of the the infection deaths like MRSA and and uh, some of these other really bad things never get reported. They, they, well, that's right. Ask families who have had a family member in the hospital suffering from one of these infections. The fact is when someone dies from a hospital infection, it seldom appears less than half the time on the death certificate. Now, it's up to each state what rules they have for what goes on a death certificate, but the CDC has failed to put any pressure on states to make 
death certificates truthful. And I know there are many people listening to us right now, Gary, who have not only lost a loved one, but then felt the anger, the frustration that the death certificate was a lie, that it, it simply listed what the patient, what the diagnosis the patient had when the patient went into the hospital rather than the infection that actually killed that patient. Now, why do they do that? Is that a liability issue? I mean, do they think they're going to get sued because well, of that? Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. And uh, the fact is that public health authorities and even the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, whose job it is to to monitor and reduce these infections, they just like to downplay it because the fact is they cater to the hospitals rather than really going to bat for the patients. Now, I, I was, uh, you know, we've all heard of of uh, MRSA, kind of a, a staph uh, infection. It's called methicillin-resistant staph, right? Staph that's hard to treat because yeah. it doesn't respond to most drugs. And that's that's pretty much everywhere uh, in this and country. And the big one is C. diff, as you know. Yeah, C. diff. Uh, in in uh, uh, anticipating you coming on over the weekend, I was just kind of skimming through things and uh, came across a uh, AP article about a new fungus they're finding in uh, Candida auris. Yeah, in That's New right. York and New Jersey. Well, it, it is in New York and New Jersey. It's in other states as well, although primarily in the middle Atlantic states. It's killed over 60 people in the U.S., which, of course, is a very small number compared to the the uh, tens of thousands of people who die every year from hospital infections. But this one is a concern because the mortality rate is 60 percent. You don't really have a shot at surviving once you get this. And um, it is spreading. Even more so is another one called CRE. Carpobenum resistant bacteria mm -hmm. that is spreading like wildfire and has been for about a decade. Uh, and uh, the the CDC has done very little. They can't even tell you how many infections there are around the country. Believe it or not, this is one of the really incredible things. The CDC's data on hospital infection is six years old. Oh and is taken from a tiny sampling of hospitals, literally a very small sample, that excludes all the population centers like New York City, Boston, Southern California, Florida, where so many hospitals are. You can't stalk a killer. You can't defeat a killer if you don't even know where it is. Yeah. Well, six years is like... Six-year-old data. That's six what year it old is. Six-year-old data. That's like... That's like 100,000 mutations of a bacteria, isn't it? That's right. Can you imagine? Now, this is the same organization that, that has spent hundreds of millions of dollars, billions now, on Ebola mm -hmm. in Africa. They have built labs all over uh, Central Africa. They can now tell you when there's a case of Ebola anywhere in Africa, but they can't tell you how many hospital infections there are in Ohio or New York or Florida or California. To me, that's an outrage. Now, you know, you've, you've been in, into this for a long time. Uh, you've studied it. Uh, and, and forgive my ignorance, but what makes a, a MRSA a MRSA? How do we get uh, a, a bacteria, a fungus that is so resistant? How does it reach that point well, that we can't this is, fix it? This is 
evolution, Gary. This has been happening since the beginning of time that these bacteria evolve. Okay. It's only recently that we have started to identify the rapidity of the evolution in response to the fact that most of these germs only live in hospitals. That's the only place you'll find them, hospitals really? and nursing homes and rehab centers. You won't find CRE uh, or this Candida auris anyplace else. And these germs live in hospitals and other healthcare environments, and they morph in response to the environment. So when there's a lot of one type of antibiotic being used, they genetically change. And, of course, the life cycle of these bacteria is so short that they morph rapidly, and within a matter of months, they have changed themselves. And they've also attached some of their genetic mutations to other kinds of germs, which makes us very worried because the drug resistance is leaping from one type of bacteria to another. You know, I, I did uh, get a little comfort by a couple senators uh, in the last few days did put forth some serious legislation uh, regulating the ingredients of homemade soap. So uh, I'm pretty excited that uh, they're on top of this. Yes, but here's what we really need to do. Here's the other side. I'm laughing. I okay, I, I was being satirical there. So. Yeah, but here's what we really need to do. The number one predictor of who gets a hospital infection, mm -hmm. it's not how old you are. It's not the diagnosis that brought you into the hospital. The number one predictor is what room you're assigned to. If you're assigned to a hospital room and a preceding patient in that room, even three weeks before, a month before, three months before, had an infection, your risk goes way up because wow. that patient was discharged a long time ago, but the germs that patient left behind are still lurking there waiting to kill you. Now, it's, it, you think of a hospital as uh, fairly conscientious about sterilizing things and cleaning things. No, is, is no it that's they simply don't? not true. Okay. The studies show, and I've, there are just so many of them, that over 50% of the surfaces, even in an operating room, that are supposed to be cleaned are overlooked by the cleaners, 50%. Wow. And in patient rooms, consistently, at least 50% of the surfaces are overlooked. And we've studied which surfaces. If you have to eat a sandwich in a patient's hospital room, put it on the toilet seat. That is seldom overlooked. That's one of the cleanest places in the hospital room. But That's don't put incredible. it on that over-the-bed table or that night table or That's that ne next to that privacy curtain because they seldom get cleaned. Now, what, 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 what's the answer to this? I mean, it... it Technology. It, okay. And we have to fight inertia. For example, there are now new technologies that can be installed in a hospital that... 24-7, continuously disinfect that hospital room in a non-toxic way mm -hmm. so you don't even have to move the patient out of the room. Oh, wow. But the CDC every year says, oh, we better study these a little more. Can you imagine? That's incredible. If no lives were being lost, take your time. Yeah. But hundreds of thousands of people are dying. That's incredible. That's it. Speaking, you know, and, and once again, I... I shun hospitals like the plague, no pun intended. But, um, you know, it, it just makes you not want to get sick. And since we're... Well, who has a choice? Yeah, well, you know. You know, the fact is, if these germs, these superbugs that resist antibiotics continue to rage on 
and the CDC continues to not do its job, it is going to be too dangerous yeah. to go to a hospital for cancer therapy, chemotherapy, serious heart surgery, or so many other things, yeah. because those invasive procedures open you up literally, literally, to these germs, and we have to be able to treat them. Yeah, I, I would agree. I talked to uh, Representative Jim Jordan last week and and uh, talked to him a little bit about this tax reform. Uh, that why, why is tax reform stalled? Because Obamacare uh, repeal stalled. And he was trying to explain to me the, the process of Congress, which is <clears throat> worse than making sausage. But uh, I kind of liked what I, I read today on the, the, the tax reform ideas, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. I think the tax reform package is terrific, and I hope that the uh, House members, Ryan particularly, will not uh, stand in the way insisting that this is, quote, paid for within 10 years, because the fact is 10 years is an eternity in politics. Go for the 10-year temporary tax break. Let's enjoy the prosperity, and, and then we'll fix it again. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating when President Obama was in office, uh, nobody cared about uh, balancing out the the taxes and the spending, and now all of a sudden it's a major thing when we want to cut taxes. Right, so, but uh, let's, let's not get bamboozled by that. If we have right. a great tax cut, the nation will flourish, Republicans will stay in control, and we'll pass it again. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll grow out of some of these problems. Uh, with of further course. reform, you know, so. Uh, you sound well, like a great Reaganite to me, Gary. Yeah, well, you know, he, <laughs> he was one of my heroes of the past, you know, so uh, uh, loved his policies. Well, Betsy, this is uh, always a real pleasure for me. It's been too long since we talked. Uh, Thank you. Anytime. I love, love, love to talk to you on the air or off. <laughs> I appreciate it. And we will tap you on the shoulder again soon. So, bye-bye. Bye-bye. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. To an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. I read a couple of things this week that, depending on how you look at it, can uh, be optimistic or maybe a little less optimistic. I'm not sure. One of them was a, uh, uh, a book called The Complacent Class that talks about uh, or draws the conclusion that maybe America has lost its entrepreneurial spirit. And that's what really grabs my attention. Whenever anybody says, we're not entrepreneurs anymore, we're not producing things anymore, we're not creating things anymore, to me that's an ignorant statement. What we're doing is we're producing things and creating things in a different way. Now, it's hard for a baby boomer like myself to, to utter the phrase paradigm shift, but the fact is there's been a paradigm shift. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. I was born in the 50s, and my dad was an entrepreneur. He owned several companies, and that was the environment I grew up in. From the time I was little, I never never really thought about working for someone. I never thought about getting a job somewhere. Um, my whole life from the time I was little was, okay, what can I do 
to make money? What can I sell? What can I create to make money? And uh, so growing up, as I got older, it was still the same. I, I, I owned my first real company, had its own tax ID number and that kind of stuff at 18, the youngest you can really own a company. And I've never looked back. I've never really worked for anybody. Now, when I was in college, yeah, I took jobs and uh, worked by the hour and got paid by the hour, that kind of stuff. But it was never a career move. It was just a necessary step to getting what I ultimately wanted. So I don't think the entrepreneurial spirit is gone in America. I think part of it is a reset, if you will, because of uh, necessity. If you have everything you want, if uh, all your needs are being met, then you don't really think about uh, doing something different to get a different result. You've heard the old phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, if you don't have anything you necessarily need or want, you're not particularly motivated to invent anything. Now, does that create a a destruction of the entrepreneurial spirit? I would say no. I, I think it pauses, maybe, pauses the entrepreneurial spirit, but it, it's not a a generational thing where if the parents aren't entrepreneurs, the kids won't be either, and the grandkids won't be either. It'll be based on, among other things, necessity. The innovations we see today are different than than the innovations we looked at when I was young. The innovations today are around apps, uh, electronic, uh, digital products, if you will. Um, when I was a kid, it, it was more about the, the basics of life, uh, building homes, uh, manufacturing uh, products. It, it wasn't about digital. It wasn't about uh, on-demand entertainment. It, 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 it wasn't about any of that. It was I don't want to say more basic, but it was certainly more pedestrian than um, the things being created today. Now, the other thing I read was a, a uh, Gallup Hope Index. It was, uh, you've heard of Gallup. Um, they do surveys or research all over the place, and, and uh, they coupled with a, a, an organization called Operation Hope. And Operation Hope is is based on uh, helping foster that entrepreneurial spirit in today's youth. And what they found after surveying, um, I think, 30 million students, well, they didn't survey that many. They, they represented 30 million American students in middle and high school, grades 5 through 12. And... Uh, um, 40% of them, 40% of them said that they want to um, start their own business and or invent something that will be significant or change the world. 
The problem is that very few of these students are participating in internships at companies or organizations and really studying, really learning the entrepreneurial aspect of life. But the attitude is there. The desire is there. Now we got to backfill the education and opportunity and foster that entrepreneurial spirit. I think this is a positive, even though it has some, some negative connotation to it, that these kids are not prepared financially. They're not financially literate. And to me, that's a, a uh, problem that certainly the educational system can address, but more importantly, the family, the parents need to address that problem. I learned about money and business and savings and debt and profit margin and cost of materials and that kind of stuff um, from my parents. I did not learn that in school until much, much later. Learned it more in college than uh, certainly high school. But I had an advantage. I had an entrepreneurial father that uh, knew that information and wanted to make sure that I learned it. We have to do that. We have to get that information out there. We have to encourage that entrepreneurial spirit. And it may be encouraging young people to develop things that we don't understand. I don't understand a lot of the digital and technological apps and applications that are out there right now. I would never use uh, an Uber, but a lot of people do. Um, I would never use some of the technology that's out there for what it's being used for. But that doesn't mean it's not useful and not profitable in some form. So our job is support, encouragement, and education. We need to get these kids educated. We need to involve them in our companies. Seek out interns, invite them into your organization, and let them learn what you go through. If they're entrepreneurs at heart, that'll come to the surface sharing that experience. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.